Welcome, welcome, welcome into A Seminarian and Friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, Scripture, the Church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, a seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. My good buddy asked me recently about the significance of the story in Matthew 17 when Peter went fishing. So let me read the story first, and then we'll dive into it. This is found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up and read it with me. It says this, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So let me catch you up with a little bit of some context. I want to look first at the flow of the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They track the the life and death of Jesus. Two of them, Matthew and Luke, start with his birth, but then all four of him record his ministry, which started with his baptism, and then three years of his life where Jesus called and trained and made disciples as he announced and initiated his kingdom on earth, fulfilling hundreds of years of prophecy from the Old Testament. Now you can summarize his announcement of this kingdom as found in Mark 1. He said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel is shorthand for good news. And then while he was going around places and telling people about the kingdom, he was himself initiating and bringing the kingdom about. And one way he summarized it uh, as he initiated his kingdom over Satan's, Matthew 12, and it says this, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Jesus is referring to the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan that entered the world in Genesis 3. So Adam and Eve sinned. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you are probably familiar with this. Or if you've been in the church for a while, you are familiar with this story. Adam and Eve sinned by listening to the serpent instead of God's word. And it brought in an age of death and darkness. And the Bible says that that Satan was actually the prince uh, of this kingdom. 
and so in this kingdom there's like i said death and sickness and disease and curse god had cursed the land god is sovereign over it but but satan has this dominion of it because adam had given his dominion over to satan this darkness was the result of sin and it affects everyone right so when jesus came he said i'm going to destroy the works of the devil and bring in my own kingdom so that's what we see him doing in the gospels and all along the goal was for jesus to end this ministry in jerusalem by laying his life down through his crucifixion and then take it back up in his resurrection before ascending to the father's right hand so so the the scope of his ministry was to make disciples and welcome them into this kingdom that he started and worked through his death and resurrection and that brings us to today's text the question of my buddy and matthew 17 takes place a little bit before jesus entered jerusalem that happened in chapter 21 of matthew and we know that this story is about a month before then or before one of the passovers of his ministry and since it's recorded so close to chapter 21 it's it's safe to guess that it happened a month before his passion things are intense right now there's been a lot of tension between him and some of the religious leaders the religious elite of the land let me give you a quick recap of some of the things that have just happened up to this point two of these religious groups the pharisees who were the law keepers they ran the synagogues and the temple in jerusalem and they prided themselves and i use that word very strongly it was a point of pride for them of keeping the law to a t and not just the letter of the law but they had added all of these traditions and customs on top of god's law and they prided themselves and measured their own righteousness based on how well they kept this law and then you had another group called the sadducees they're a little bit different still loved the law and followed a lot of traditions but they didn't believe in angels or the spiritual realm they believed in god they didn't believe in the resurrection so they were at odds with each other but they became common friends against their one enemy jesus and so there was an episode where these two groups were confronting jesus and asking for signs because they didn't believe that he was the messiah the christ the anointed one jesus said i'm not going to give you a sign in effect saying that he is the sign but what he said was the only sign i will give you is the sign of jonah who was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights and he based the fact that he was going to die and rise again in this book of the bible called jonah after that he was leading his disciples away from this confrontation and, and he told them not to let their leaven the leaven of the pharisees and the sadducees poison them the 12 
meaning that the teachings of the Pharisee and Sadducees, Jesus didn't want to infiltrate into the minds of his disciples. And then a little bit later, Jesus just kind of asks, hey, who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me? And after a couple questions, Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And immediately after that, Jesus says, you are right, and I'm going to die and rise again. And then Peter responds by saying, far be it from you to die. So in effect, we want you to initiate your kingdom without going to the cross. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because he knew that if he tried to and get his kingdom fully realized without going to the cross, it would not be the way the father wanted him to do it. So he rebukes Peter and instead tells his disciples, no, I'm going to the cross. And if you are going to be my disciple, you too must take up your cross daily. Then a little bit later, he goes up on a mountain and is transfigured, his clothes turn all white. The three inner circle disciples go up with him, Peter, James, and John. They see his heavenly glory, and then they come down the mountain and are met with a boy who has a demon that the other nine disciples can't exercise. Jesus casts this demon out, and then a little bit later, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to die and rise again and tells them the second time or at least we get the second recording of it he may have told them more often and then we get to this episode that i just read to you which happened in verses 24 to 27 so we're gonna kind of take a deep look at it. it starts like this when they came to capernaum the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to peter and said does your teacher not pay the tax? So Capernaum was the second most northern town on the Sea of Galilee. It was about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. It was the home base for Jesus and his ministry and, and the disciples. It's where they spent most of their time sleeping and, and staying in people's houses. And, and a lot of the miracle stories from earlier in the Gospels take place in Capernaum and in the surrounding towns of the Sea of Galilee. Now this this two drachma tax that, that's mentioned was a requirement for Jewish male residents of Capernaum and, and Israel. It was an annual tax of, of two coins and the money went to the temple in Jerusalem to help pay for the priests and the offerings and the sacrificial system and it, it yeah, it helped pay for the temple. And the the men were required to pay it. They could pay it in person every year at the Passover. Or they would send from the temple a month before. And that's why we know that this story takes place about a month before Passover. They would send out these collectors who would collect the tax and then bring it back to Jerusalem. So those are who... The people are who, who talk to Peter. A and interestingly, this tax brought so much money in that they didn't know what to do with all the money. And they, and they started to 
build excessive things in the temple. And one of those things was a golden vine on the temple. And, and if you know the Bible well, you should immediately think of the golden calf from Exodus. Read this little tidbit as a sign of some idolatry that's going on in the temple and in Jerusalem. Also, interestingly, in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. Rome destroyed it, but Rome, who was oppressing the Jews at the time, continued to make the men pay this tax, and it, it went to build a temple to the Roman idol Jupiter. So many people disapproved of this tax, including the Sadducees, which I mentioned earlier. They tried to evade it and didn't want their money to go to the temple for various reasons. Now, New Testament scholar R.T. France said that rabbis were exempt from the tax. Thus, the question that, that they confronted Peter with, does your teacher not pay the tax? They had some understanding about if he's a rabbi, then he doesn't have to pay the tax. Thus, the question posed to Peter is more about Jesus's identity than his observance of a rule. So who is Jesus? Now, this is the question we all must answer. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were content to call him a rabbi or a teacher in, in English. But they were very cautious because the gospel record up to this point alerts us to, to think and know that they called him a teacher, but a teacher who blasphemes God, according to their understanding. And they wanted to accuse him, and by extension, they wanted to accuse his disciples. So with this question, they wanted to assert that he was breaking their customs, blaspheming a transgressor, and they were seeking to dismiss him, even accuse him and arrest him. Potentially. That's where the story is, is going to and, and will ultimately climax in. And we see that even in the wording of the question. It's accusatory. Does your teacher not pay the tax? So again, it's, it's yet another scene of, of mounting tension between the religious elite and Jesus. Of course, 2,000 years later, this same question is posed to us. We have to wrestle with what we think about Jesus. We have to decide for ourselves who Jesus is and if our understanding of him conforms to reality or not. Is he just some people's teacher who may or may not teach the truth? And are we going to accuse him and reject him and revile him? Look back at verse 25. The text says, he said, yes. So Peter responded to this question, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, yes. It's a simple answer. And I'm not quite sure what Peter was thinking. Obviously, we don't know what Peter's thoughts were. But in this yes, it could be an assumption that Jesus did, in fact, pay the tax, and he did throughout his life. We don't know whether 
that was what Peter was thinking or not. It could also be an acknowledgement that Jesus was among the eligible, meaning that though a rabbi, he was still required and eligible to, to pay taxes. Again, because, you know, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees acknowledged with their lips that Jesus was a teacher, but is that really what they believed? So there's, there's some of that going on in there. Peter also could have stated that Jesus was not against the tax, like the Sadducees or some other religious sects were. Peter just simply said, yes. And then he thought the episode was over. He agreed and walked away. But then we get in the next sentence, kind of the next scene. And it says, And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or others? Now that could be a little bit of a jarring question. Why did he ask that? Well, Jesus had clearly seen what had transpired. And he saw an opportunity to reveal more of himself to Peter and then reveal to Peter a precious truth of his own identity. So Jesus took the initiative and he asked a question. Jesus asked a lot of questions of his disciples. It was one of his favorite ways of engaging them and teaching them. It got them thinking and, and wrestling with, with these spiritual truths of the kingdom that Jesus was, was teaching. So Jesus, again, took the initiative. He asked a question, and it was a simple question. It was like a parable. He wanted Peter to start thinking about his own experiences in the world and how those go along with some of these deep spiritual truths that, that Jesus was trying to teach. So in Peter's experience, do kings normally expect taxes from their own families, particularly their heirs? Now we know right away that the answer is an obvious no. In fact, it, it might even be repulsive to us, at least to our common sense, that a king would demand of his children to pay tax. So the answer is no. And why is that? Being the king's son is an honored, privileged thing. Sons are trained to rule so that when the time comes, they will follow that role and rule themselves. And regardless of if they're the first heir or not, they're all trained and then honored in a similar fashion to the king himself. They carry a similar authority as the king and they enjoy the riches of the king himself. At least, ideally. Granted, we know that in this fallen world, in this kingdom of darkness, in this cursed world with, with sin running rampant, we see kings mistreating their own families. So yeah, you can look in, in history and see examples of, of this not happening. But, but according to what should happen and, and often what typically happened, no, the king was a good father and, and didn't make his sons pay him tax and, and homage. So again, why did Jesus ask this question? What, what was he trying to get Peter to think about? Well, Peter knew this, but Jesus was reminding him that 
His identity was not what these collectors and these Pharisees and the Sadducees thought of him. He's more than a teacher of a ragtag group of Palestinian men from 2,000 years ago. Again, Peter knew this. He had been walking with Jesus for a long time, seen his miracles. In fact, like we said earlier, he had confessed him as the Christ already. Confessed him as the very Son of God on whom they had been waiting for millennia. They'd been waiting for this Redeemer, this this Son of God, this new prophet to arrive and free them. And since he is this very Son of God, there are some implications. God, as the Old Testament claims very clearly, is the king, not just of Israel, but of the whole earth, of all the nations, and yes, all of creation. And that means that his son would have a likewise exalted position, likewise exalted authority, and likewise exalted preeminence. So Jesus simply reminded Peter of this, of who he is. This is Jesus's true identity. Therefore, as Peter was trying to think of this and, and connect the dots himself of why Jesus asked this question. Jesus being not just a teacher, which itself would exempt him from paying the tax, but he's also the son of God, the unique, only begotten, pre-existent, one of a kind son of God, the wisdom of God, the word of God from eternity who came down in flesh and therefore is doubly exempt from this temple tax. And again, we, we face this question today of Jesus' identity. We're confronted with it again in this text, and, and we look all around and, and see all these different ideas about who Jesus is. Is he just a good moral teacher? I don't know if that claim can hold water because his own contemporaries disagreed with that. They said he is not a good teacher because in their eyes, he broke their own customs. Now, in reality, as we see through the rest of the scriptural canon, he was returning the law to what Moses had handed down as God intended, but the Pharisees, who had themselves twisted it, thought, no, Jesus isn't a good teacher because he's changing and breaking the customs. So how can we today think that Jesus is just a good moral teacher when that's not what people in that day who saw him thought? Indeed, he must be something more. He must be the Son of God in the flesh, and thus the King and Lord of all creation, exalted as a Son. And that's what Peter was confronted with trying to figure out. So my question is, which is true in your mind? Is he just the teacher, or is he something more? Well, the, the rest of the text might shed some light in this. So after that, Peter responded, and he said, from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So again, Jesus is referring to the king's sons and the privilege it is to be a son of a king. Now, let's not give Peter too much grief because it's popular to do so. 
yes, I, I know that he made a lot of mistakes. I get it. want to point out that we also make a lot of mistakes and we continue to sin ourselves. And we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us in a way that Peter did not yet. In fact, Peter understood what Jesus wanted him to say. Again, let's, let's not give Peter too much grief. He followed Jesus's logic, the exalted status and benefits of sonship. Again, the sons are free. And so we'll get to why, how Jesus connected there in a second. But, but I want to camp out here because that's really, really good news. The sons are free later. Paul told the church in Galatia that Christ had set them free from sin and the law so that they would be free. Free! Man, how often do we feel free? You know, how often do you feel free? We might say that we're free. I, I mean, after all, we live in America, right? It, it's the land of liberty. It's the land of, of freedom. We have the opportunity to do a whole cacophony of things that we want to do. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of religion. The, the government doesn't have the ability to demand that we believe certain things or say certain things. We're not censored. That sounds pretty free, right? And again, look at, look at all the opportunities of things you can do. You can go to college and, and choose what major you want, or you can choose what career you want to do. You, you have the opportunity to choose what spouse to marry. I think a lot of things have changed during COVID, and, and I'm sure you would agree with me. But did it actually change things, or did it just change our perceptions of things? Yes, we have experienced quarantine and lockdown and, and certain freedoms, quote-unquote, have been removed from us, but I think this quarantine just exposes that we're not actually as free as we think we are. Our society claims freedom, but really we're, we're locked up. We're held captive in the clutches of our doubts, of our insecurities, of our desires our desires for more of this or more of that. In fact, we are enslaved to our passions. We want things that are fun in the moment, but give us less and less pleasure and more and more pain as we pursue them further. We think alcohol will satisfy us. So we exercise our quote unquote freedom by getting drunk and it leaves us emptier and less satisfied once it leaves our system. Or we seek more money, more fame, more knowledge, tasty food, a bigger house, a better job, an attractive or compatible partner, or maybe a more attractive or more compatible partner than the last one. And we think that this next thing will be it. It'll be it. The thing. Then I'll make it. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be accepted. Then I'll be free but it won't. And our experience testifies to that. We're not truly free. We're enslaved to our desires. We're enslaved to ourselves. We're enslaved to what society tells us to be and feel and think. I mean, look at, look at all the advertisements that, that come across telling us to be a certain way. 
we're not free. And if we're honest, we're enslaved to ourselves. What we crave is true freedom, as if we were the sons of a king. Man, wouldn't that be nice? Don't you want to be free? So how does Jesus follow up his claim that that the sons are free? He says this, However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Now that might feel a little bit jarring uh, to follow Jesus's logic here. I just spent so much time talking about freedom and sonship, and then all of a sudden Jesus just talks about this miracle of a fish. But let me see if I can connect it. So Jesus claims that the sons are free. And then he opens Peter's eyes to his power. He reveals who he is. And this connection that I see is that Jesus is inviting Peter into deeper intimacy of himself, a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. And in that context, it tells me that freedom is knowing Jesus. You see that? Freedom is knowing Jesus. And thus, there's a connection between knowing Jesus means you're a son, and a son means freedom. So knowing Jesus means freedom. That's that's the logic. So I guess the question that is probably stirring in your mind is, if I want to be free, I need to become a son, and I need to become, I need to know Jesus. So how do I do that? Well, I want to invite you to take a, a look at, at Jesus's character with me. And maybe that'll answer the question. So look, look back at this last verse. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. So Jesus is unwilling to unnecessarily offend these people, these collectors. Granted, I, I want to highlight this, that Christianity is offensive. It's offensive to our modern sensibilities and our earthly wisdom. The message of the cross, where a king would die for his people, where victory looks like defeat, is an offensive message. The commands of scripture, which God gave as his good, merciful gift to humanity in love, it offends our modern ethics of self-identity and sexual practices and self-freedom. But I would ask again, are we really free? And are we more now, are we more free now as a society and as individuals than we were before, before we started to, as Disney says, follow our heart? Because I think the Bible's claim that, that the heart is deceitful above all things is pretty accurate. You know, I know that when I get caught up in following just what I want and what I seek, like, it puts me in a really bad spot. I'm just not healthy. And I'm willing to bet that that if people give a good, honest look at, at that, they would tend to agree. There's this, this enslavement in us 
as we seek this freedom that the world is teaching us. And I don't know that we're more free. I, in fact, I know that we're not free. Yes, Christianity is offensive. The cross, all of that, it's offensive. Probably what I just said offended you. But, but Jesus was intentional in not being over offensive. He sought to demonstrate generosity and kindness. Grace. In fact, Paul expounded this element of Jesus' character as a command for Christians to live by in Romans 14 when he said, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So Jesus is is exemplifying that here. He's, he's not providing an unnecessary stumbling block. I use unnecessary because, like I just said, there is some offense to the gospel and to the message of the cross. But, but Jesus was intentional in not doing an unnecessary stumbling block. And he's doing even more than that. It foreshadowed what he had been telling his disciples would happen soon. He was going to go to the cross soon and pay the debt for many and offer grace and forgiveness. Now, this part of the message, Peter didn't have the full picture of yet. And so he focused on, well, Jesus just doesn't want to make offense. Okay, that's fine. But he didn't have to. But he did. So now... Check out the way that, that Jesus went about not offending. The text says, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. And so in this verse, again, who is this Jesus? Because I think this text is telling us that he's the son of God, who is generous and gracious and gentle, the son of God. And Lord of creation. I mean, look at how he can control elements such as the sea and fish and insert a coin into a fish's mouth. And that's the exact one that Peter's going to fish out. I mean, how can that be the case unless he is the Lord of creation, the very son of God? And then how can we encounter this one who has authority over the sea like this and not fall at his feet in worship? Now, earlier there was an episode where the disciples witnessed Jesus's power on a grander scale over creation when he calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee and, and they cowered in fear of Jesus, this one whom even the wind and the sea obey. 
But here's some good news. We don't have to. Because Jesus offers freedom to us instead. Remember, sons are free. Jesus is the son. Jesus is free and he offers freedom to us. So how does he do that? Now look at, look at how Jesus finished his statement to Peter. He said, take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus provided the payment for both himself and Peter, even though he didn't have to. But he did. He chose to do it because he's generous and gracious. And in paying for both himself and Peter, Jesus extended the massive privileges and rights of being God's son to Peter. Peter, though not the eternally preeminent son of God like Jesus is, was brought into God's holy family as a son and received all of Christ's benefits. John, elsewhere in scripture, said it beautifully. But to all who did receive him, him being Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And, and, and Paul said it like this, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. I know that Paul didn't have specifically in mind some of these things I'm about to mention, but, but I think it includes or can include things like just running after approval by our friends or partying or chasing after grades or running the rat race of this life just to fill us up. So he's saying we all were enslaved to these things. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There it is. Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, Paul went on to say, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The sons are free. There's freedom in Jesus if you become a son. So here's the offer held out to you. You have your own debt. It's not a temple tax of two small coins, but it can't be paid without a miracle. In all your attempts to pay it or run from it or deny it, the debt is still there. You owe something to God. You owe obedience to God's perfect law, but you've fallen short and accrued a large debt. You're guilty. This debt is called sin and it deserves death. And in fact, you feel it too. There's so much pressure to be free from something you can't identify and so much pressure to be accepted. But you can't pay this debt. You long to be a son who's free, but you can't do it yourself. But here's the good news. Once Jesus arrived in Jerusalem after this episode, 
he went through with the goal of his ministry to miraculously pay your debt. He was crucified and he died. The death he died was enough to cover and pay the huge debt of all his people from all time. His death paid it all and purchased forgiveness of sin and freedom. On the third day, he rose again and defeated this sin, and he defeated death once and for all. He demonstrated that he is the son of God who had no need himself to pay a debt or to die. Yet, he did it for all who would believe in his name and come to him. In his life, he lived perfectly so that his obedience counts as his people's obedience. And now, if you repent and believe this, you can also become a son who no longer needs to pay your debt because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. God will forgive your sins and count you righteous because of Jesus. He will adopt you into his family and love you as his own son, and you will be free. Friends, I pray that you believe this message and come to Christ to receive his debt-paying grace. Amen, and soli Deo Gloria.